Well, the last time that we were in the book of James together was uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And we saw James make a powerful plea for those whose faith claim and Christian walk were, let's say, out of sync, to reconsider their ways and to repent. James was evangelizing, as I made mention, the hardest group of people to evangelize, those who are believing to be saved but aren't saved and are in need of salvation. They have a faith claim, believe in Jesus, but at the same time, their, their lives were so out of sync with one who would be a follower of Christ, James spent many verses working very hard to convince them otherwise. Now, in our text this morning, James turns his attention to those in the church who are truly believers. Um, how many of you have ever received a letter in the mail? It's always nice to get something in the mail these days, is it not? Rather than in your email inbox or your text message or your whatever it may be, to get a letter in the mail is pretty, is pretty neat. And um, hey, Matt, if you can help, I've got a lot of reverb in this. I don't know if these guys can pull it out, but if you could help with that, that would be great. If you've ever received a letter in the mail, you know how great that is, but ever, have you ever received one that had a postscript to it? So they tell you all the things they want, they want you to know, thank you, you got it, I think. And at the very end, um, they leave a little note bene. It's something they, that they for certain want you to have in the forefront of your mind at the conclusion of their letter. And what it seems to me as I'm looking at the passage of James, though it's not the end of his letter, it seems that the, the verses this morning are somewhat of a postscript. Something that he is wanting the believers, if you remember, he was giving a, a call, a, an evangel for those to repent, to come to faith, those whose lives were out of sync with their, their faith claim. And, and so he turns this morning and he, and he talks very specifically and very directly to the brethren. And it's the, the last thing by way of a poignant issue that James is now bringing to our attention. When we get to chapter 5, beginning next week and following, there are some, some uh, basic reminders that we need to know of, but this is one of the, the most poignant things that James is leaving, and it seems he's leaving for us, true believers within the church whose faith claim and faith walk uh, are in alignment with one another. Not saying that we're perfect, not saying that we always walk perfectly and that we never sin. We have besetting sins in life, and we struggle against those, and we're daily putting to death the deeds of our flesh, right? And we take those issues to the Lord on a daily basis, and as we start our day, we even pray over those things. We memorize Scripture to help us fight against those things. Remember the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? And we use the sword of God in, in, in such a way so that we can win over besetting sins. Well, look with me in James chapter 4, verse 11. And notice what he specifically wants you and I to have in mind. He says here in verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brethren. Again, James clearly has believers, I believe, in mind. He says, um, brethren. I believe he's now, after the call to repentance, 
focusing in on the brethren, those whose faith claim and faith walk would be together, who have an assurance that Jesus is mine. This imperative that he brings to our attention, that he wants in the forefront of our minds as one of the last important issues for us to be thinking about as brethren, as the sons and daughters of God, is that we ought to be showing our living faith in a very specific way. And specifically, he's going to say that we need to be showing our faith in such a way that there's a prohibition against slander and malicious, malicious gossip against one another within the church and in, even in a broader sense, the universal church, against other Christians. Again, look at verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Speak against, right here, he who speaks against is a compound word in the Greek, which is not that significant, kata, laleo, against, and speak. But it's speech that specifically has a careless and a critical or derogatory nature in mind. It's speech that has the intent to bring harm against the one to whom we are speaking of. James is speaking of malicious gossip or slander against a brother or sister in Christ. You see, God's word right here commands us not to do such a thing. And while there will always be differences of opinions, we must never kata laleo. We must never speak against maliciously other brothers and sisters in Christ. James says when we do so, we stand in judgment against the Word of God. It's not a good place to be, is it? In Leviticus 19.16, we see things of this nature all the way back there. Where he's, Moses writes, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Slander amongst the people is tied very closely to acting against the life of the one of whom you're speaking. It's a significant takedown of their character, of their reputation. You shall not go about doing that. David was so aware of the destructive nature of slander, he said in Psalm 140, verse 11, he said, May a slanderer not be established in the earth. David would that, that the slanderer would not have any room on the earth. He says, May evil hunt that, that violent man down speedily. David speaks of slander against your brethren as an evil that needs to be hunted down and brought to an end. In the book of Proverbs alone, there's enough on slander to warn of its destructive nature. 
Proverbs 16, 28 says that slander destroys friendships. Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever experienced that in your own life? Unfortunately. 26, 22, slander inflicts wounds. Slander can destroy people. 11, 9, 26, 20, a slanderer stirs up contention. A slanderer spreads strife. Proverbs 6, 19. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says that Slander characterizes a person whom God has given over to a depraved mind. Notice in Romans 1, 28 through 30, the very first word of verse 30, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So he's talking here about unbelievers. Slander is that which is characteristic of those who do not believe and have a hope in God, who do not recognize that other brothers and sisters have been made in the very image and likeness of God. They do not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. To do those things. And then Paul goes on a list of those things. And towards the end, well, they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers. And I just chopped it off there because I got to the point that I needed Speaking against kataleleo is not to be that which is characteristic of God's brothers and sisters, the brethren within the church. God's word is clear that there's no place in the life of his children for such evil, sinful behavior. And James here in his postscript is warning the true believers of the church to guard themselves against such temptation. Now it's also important to notice what James is not saying when he is saying to not speak against a brother or sister in Christ. In verse 11, James said, He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Some have this idea that it's become a very catchphrase within our culture, you know, don't judge, thou shalt not judge. And we kind of have adopted in a weird way this idea that brothers and sisters in Christ are not to be each other's keeper. That's not what James is talking about. In Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him. There is to be accountability within the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, one to another. There is to be such Accountability, but you notice what the key word here is in this passage. It's the word sins. If your brother, or you might say, or sister sins, go and show him or her their fault in private. There's a sense where we bring accountability, but in that case, we're not standing as judge over them. We've elevated God's word as the standard that stands above all of us, and we judge ourselves according to the standard of God's word. God's word becomes the standard by which we hold each other accountable. That's not what James has in mind. If your brother or sister sins, show them how they have sinned against God, against God's standards, as prescribed in the Scriptures. It doesn't say if your brother or sister has a different personal conviction. It says sins. 
Now, some people hold their personal convictions as on par with the Scriptures. Have you noticed that? And they take a verse that we're going to get to in 4.17, he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. And they claim that their own personal convictions become somehow etched in the stones of God's law, and that's sin if they or other people don't hold to their personal convictions. Have you ever heard that or noticed that? Well, last time I checked, when Moses came down from the mountain, there were ten commandments. And there wasn't a little addendum on the back that said, and add your personal convictions when you hear a little whispering in your ear. Listen, if you want to hold to a certain standard of godliness, hold to it. But don't hold everybody else, brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, to that same standard that you believe God would have you live if it's not according to the Scriptures. Amen, brothers and sisters? Because that's what leads oftentimes to slander and gossip and the gnawing on one another within the church of Jesus Christ. We have artificial standards that we love so dearly that we put it on par with Scripture, and boy, if anybody else gets off par with our personalized Scriptures, they're in sin, and so we have a need sometimes to stand over them in judgment. And God says, when you do that, if you kata laleo, you speak against a brother or sister, and it's not something that's according to the Scriptures, you stand in judgment against God and His Word. You've put yourself in the place of being and playing God. Again, that's, that's not a good place to be, is it? I, I, would, I, I say not. This is again why James says, look again at verse 11, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. Speaks against, if you speak against a brother or you judge a brother, you speak against the law and judge the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of it. You're a judge of it. You've, in essence, put yourself above it. And you've established what is right and what's wrong in your own eyes, and you've made yourself judge and executioner. And James knows the temptations of that within the church. I've, I've said it before, but there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're all prone to such vice, such temptation. Now, the law that James is speaking of here is what he called the royal law in chapter 2, verse 8, where we saw there, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, and notice, according to the what? The scripture, and then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. James is saying, in effect, if you slander a brother or a sister, you are thus speaking against or standing in opposition to the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your brother and your sister, because God is love. And you've thus deemed yourself worthy of judging God's law as being invalid for you. So slander is a violation of the law of love. Slander is a violation of the royal law that tells us that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in this context, James is referring to our neighbor as our brothers and sisters in Christ, those with whom we are living together within the local community of the church. So again, at the very end of verse 11, 
He says, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. James has already previously told us that we need to be effectual doers of the word, right? But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. If you're speaking against your, your brother, your sister, on non-salvific, non-sinful matters according to the scriptures, that's not what he's talking about. We saw Matthew 18 half-brother of Jesus would know that, hey, you go, if we don't allow sin to happen within the community of faith, and we go and we deal with that appropriately. But if you make arbitrary standards and you judge your brothers and sisters, you've become a judge of the law, meaning you are not in submission to God. You are not walking in humility before God. You have made yourself above God and above his revealed word, and you've become God in your own right. Again, not a good place to be. So in verse 12, notice, James puts us in our rightful place by reminding us of some very simple truth. He says in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. One. One who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? When James says there's only one lawgiver and one judge... He certainly didn't have you or I in mind, amen? He highlights that God alone is the sovereign rule, ruler, judge, and executioner. James recognizes and points out the obvious truth that God alone has the power to what? To save and to destroy. There's one who has such authority. Those who place their faith in him to save and those who don't, to destroy. Which again makes this question all the more poignant when he says, who are you? Who are you? To think that you have a right to judge your neighbor. And see right here at the end of verse 12, he brings in that, that context of neighbor. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He's talking to the brothers and sisters. Do not speak against a brother. And over here, he, he makes the connection coming from 11 all the way over here. Th this is who your neighbor is in this context. He's talking to believers. Yes, all people are our neighbors. Yes, unbelievers can be our neighbors. But in this context, he's talking to brethren. Your brothers and sisters don't stand as judge over them. Who are you to judge your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ on matters that are not according to the Scriptures? And I thought about having a separate slide that just kind of delineated on what some of our favorite pet peeves are, our favorite personal convictions might be, but I thought, no, no, um, I'm not going to go there. You know what they are. I don't have to make a list to try to remind you. Listen, all you have to do all you have to do is go to your social media outlets and listen to what good God-fearing Christians say to other good God-fearing Christians kind of in a passive-aggressive way. They don't call them out by name, but they sure let them know that if you don't do it this way, which is my way, you're not doing it God's way. Have you ever noticed that? I've noticed it far too many times, and there's a great sadness of soul when that happens. We are not to kata laleo against our brothers and sisters in Christ. If it's a sin matter, Jesus, it says in Matthew 18, you go to them privately in prayer. You go to them in private. 
and you call them. I believe this to be a sin, and here's why, and I've got a standard for us that we can objectively look at together. Someone said Christians are the only ones that shoot their own wounded, and I unfortunately have to say that while that's a, a little bit glib, oftentimes there can be truth in it. And in this postscript, James is saying, brothers and sisters, do not do this against each other. Listen, if you have personal convictions that you hold so dearly, by all means, hold them dearly. And if you feel like it's even God who's telling you to do these things, and you find some principles within the scriptures that encourage you, then by all means, do them to the glory of God, for God's glory, not your own. For God's glory and your greater joy. But while you mingle amongst other brothers and sisters this side of heaven, you're going to have to deal with some of us who don't have the same personal conviction that you do. And while that may be staggering to even think about or conceive, it's a reality. And we need to learn to live and let live, brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm working at it. We have got to learn to live and let live. Let go of some things. Not, not saying let go in the sense of don't do them. Do, do it. To the glory of God, do it. But stop judging others who choose otherwise not to. It's harmful to the church. It's harmful to the, te to the testimony of the church. It's harmful to the scriptures. Because it puts things on par with Scripture that are not intended to be on par with Scripture. And no man should add to the written word of God. It's a closed canon. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's just pray and go home. <laughs> There's enough application in this already where we need to go and seek the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me for this, forgive me for that, and, and maybe there's some things I need to pull down, and, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be some that will double down. It's so basic. Listen, if we are ever going to submit to God, <laughs> we've got to resist the devil. James shows us that we are going to have to stop playing God in the lives of others, and instead of speaking against our neighbor, our fellow brethren, with intent of some form of character assassination or Christian humiliation or whatever it might be to goad them into whatever it is we think they need goading into, we must learn instead to love them as ourself. As difficult as that may seem, they're a brother and sister in Christ. It's probably a non-salvific issue. And it's probably an issue that you've just scurried together about ten verses for, for some scriptural insights into it, but they're not mandates. They're not imperatives. So let's be wise. Wisdom from above is what? James said it's reasonable. We need to be reasonable with one another. Again, live and let live. 
on things that are not explicit sinful behavior within the church. Otherwise, we hold each other lovingly accountable to God's standards according to the Scriptures. Now, in verse 13, thank you, Holy Spirit, that inspired James. He pivots because 11 and 12 were pretty pointed. But he pivots here in verse 13, and he's going to let these brethren know something else of what it looks like to live under submission to God in our personal lives as we are making our walk of faith, our walk, match our profession of faith. Notice what he says to do in verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Together or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James here is using the example of a business person. And while no spiritual principles are violated by anything the businessman has said or potentially even done, the problem lies in their making themselves God in their own right, in, their, in and over their own lives, in planning their own ways, they've ignored a very simple principle that James is wanting to weave into our thinking as believers who go about with our tent-making ministries and businesses so that we can be partakers in the ministry of the Word. We need to keep God as the central part of our planning agenda on a day-by-day basis. He shows us this in verse 14. He says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. None of us know with 100% certainty what will happen tomorrow. None of us. And James shows that we wrongly oftentimes assume that we do know what will happen tomorrow, and so we make plans, and there's nothing wrong with planning, but James is going to indicate for us there's a very key way that we go about making plans certain plans, and it has something to do with if the Lord wills, we will do X, Y, and or Z. He's about to get to that. One of my favorite verses on this kind of a topic is that from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to assume that probably many of you probably have this passage memorized. It's my guess. We are told to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. To not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him. He will make our paths straight. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Do not lean on your own wisdom. And this is where we fall prey. We, we fall prey to our own wisdom, and we start making plans without thee, if the Lord wills. And and, you know, the, the idea of saying, if the Lord wills, where am I at? Where am I at? Oh, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. I'm going to jump ahead real fast, real quickly. I'm going back, though. He says, if the Lord wills. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. This isn't just saying words as if it's some kind of a mantra, like, I'm going to make my plans, and I'm going to say, if the Lord wills, and then close the book and be done with it. I mean, any of us could probably go down to, you know, downtown Tulsa at night, and the, and the uh, what, what's that district down there? The, 
Yes, the blue what? Dome, the blue. You probably could go down there on any given Friday, Saturday night and find some person a little bit inebriated on the street somewhere and you could say, hey, I've got a $5 bill. And if you say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that, I will give you that. They could say that all day long. And anybody could say that all day long and not mean it. And so getting to the heart of what James is getting at here he's saying that we as believers need to get to the place in our lives where we truly are living truly living with an understanding of what it means to come underneath to have humility before God to submit therefore to the Lord as he was saying earlier in chapter 4 and to have an active functioning control of that thought process not just saying words but from the heart meaning it if the Lord wills so how do we practically get to a place where we functionally are living that way? How do we do that? I'm going to let you figure that out for your own lives. I'm still kind of figuring it out for my own. It's not easy, is it? We're prone to just want to kind of say the words and mean it. But how do we live it? How do we functionally put a submissiveness to God, His Word, His ways, His wills as a controlling arm within our lives, within our planning, within how we go about structuring and scheduling our busy days, our busy weeks, our busy months, our busy years? I think that's part of the process of walking with the Lord on a day-by-day -day basis and figuring that out on a day-by-day -day basis. But I believe it starts every single morning when we roll out of the bed of having clear communication in our mind, from our hearts, to the only true God of heaven and earth. Your will be done today in my life on earth as it is in heaven. That's all I ultimately want. I've got some plans. I looked at my calendar even for tomorrow and next week. But Lord, all I ultimately want is your will. Use me as your ambassador in chains out there in this world today. And you have freedom to change my plans any which way you want to. I am yours. And then you just go and you live and you kind of see what happens. Right? But th this is the, the attitude that James is driving the brethren to. This is like a postscript. Don't forget about this. You need to recognize that you, are, you need to be living in an active, functional way underneath sovereignty of God. And he shows us here in verse 14 something that's very insightful that helps us keep that kind of thinking in mind as well. Verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow Notice right here, you, that's you, that's you. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while. I'm going to triple circle little and then vanishes away. This is you. Have you ever gone out on a really cold day and like taken as deep a breath you can on the inside? And you go outside and it's cold and and you give it that, as big as you can. Has anybody ever done that? I, it was a kid I used to do that. I thought it was fascinating. It was just like, you saw the, this cloud of breath, and then it just, it just I guess it, free, it freezes and falls to the earth. I don't know exactly what happens 
any scientist that can tell me afterwards, I'd love it. But it's, it's, it's awesome. It's like fun to watch, right? It's really fun to watch. And then you grow up and you get older and you start reading scripture and you realize, oh, that's me. That ain't so fun anymore. I, I was kind of wanting to be around for a long time. This says for a little while. And then the older you get, I see my, my, our friend Walt back here. The older you get, listen, young, young people, spend some time with some gray heads. Ask them about this, this, this principle right here. Just ask them. Is this true? Because I'm still in my 20s, my roaring 20s, or ripping 20s, roaring. I feel like I'm going to live forever, baby. Right? You do. I, Ben's going, I think I'm going to, man. No. We do. We, we don't have perspective. We see things like appear for a little while. That's me. What do you mean a little while? Just ask some gray heads. How long did it take you, Walt, to get from birth to 99? And he's going to say 99 years. It's not rocket science. It's math. But how fast did those 99 years roll by? Faster than you would believe. And I, can, and I can say that with a clear conscience at, at the ripe young age of 35 right now. I mean, it went by really fast. Okay, 45. No, fi no, 53. It goes by super, super fast. And so this passage gives us some perspective. There's another passage from our Old Testament, Psalm 103, that says the same thing. Listen, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear he who can cast soul and body in, into hell. Don't stand as judge over people. Fear God. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. So in this one, it's like grass. Over here, we're a vapor. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Boy, we are flourishing. When the wind has passed over it, it's no more, and its place acknowledges it, your life, no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting on those who fear him. Fear the Lord. What is James, in essence, teaching us when he gets to James 4.15? You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do and do this or that. He's teaching our hearts to have a fear of the Lord. To put the Lord as primary, as first place, as, as the only one to whom we go when, making our, when trying to make our lives work. Amen? I think that's, in essence, somewhat what James is trying to show us. There's an uncertainty of our future. There's a brevity of life. So go to the one who's in control, who said he would never leave you, nor forsake you, and, and in just a little while, the one before whom you will be standing. Because you will vanish away. It goes quickly. Amen, brothers and sisters? Now, assume with me just for a minute that it's the year 2121. 
100 years from now. Imagine, at that time, all of us will be spending our, our eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. This church, this city, this state, this nation, if the Lord tarries, the entire world will be populated, repopulated with entirely different human beings than are currently on it now. Just try to imagine that. And try to, in your imagining, from a bird's eye view, seeing billions of humans scampering all over the earth. Just, you ever do that when you fly and you get up in the airplane? It gives you a little perspective because it lifts you up and you can kind of look down and you see the, the insignificance and how small things really become from a larger perspective. And then think about purpose and meaning and life. What, what's the purpose of all that scampering that's going on down there? All that moving to and fro, all that building, all that arguing and complaining over personal convictions and all kinds of stuff when we need to be solid and solidified on one main thing. What's the purpose? To what purpose are you giving your life, your time, your talents, your treasure? I think James is writing all that he has written because more than anything, he wants us to live in such a way that our life story, our scampering about on this earth for as small of a period of time as it is, will be sweet and simple and full of purpose to the glory of God and for our joy. And so we have to think clearly. We have to think Biblically, we need scriptures, according to the scriptures, that instruct us on how to do those things. So that when we reach our end and are no longer, we could perhaps put on our tombstone something as simple as, I followed Christ with like three little dots, you know, dot, 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 all the way, or if you're into Marvel, all the way to the end of the line. And wouldn't it be glorious if that would and or could perfectly sum up your existence? I followed Christ all the way to the end of the line. A simple life story of submission to the word, way, and will of God. loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, thus fulfilling the royal law. I just don't think it could get any better than that, personally. And it seems that James is kind of summarizing those two things, of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't make God yourself God over your own life, over your own schedules. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring you. There's a brevity of life that you're not even aware of yet. Fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. Fear the Lord. And then don't kataleleo against one another, against your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's meaningless. It's fruitless. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of your scurrying around on planet earth. Let's not do these things, brethren. We must do what James called us to do in verse 7 when he says, Submit therefore to God. Have that attitude of, if the Lord wills, demonstrate through our lives a submissive attitude to God. 
Because when we fail to do these things, James is going to say that our continuing boasting, whichever way that may go, is not good. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. The but as it is seems to be a clear indication that the very poignant things that James is saying to the brethren not to do, they're doing. But as it is, if you continue in these things, it's a boast in yourself. You've made yourself God over others. You've elevated yourself. You've become a judge against the law. The law says love your neighbor as yourself. And you said, no, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to stand as judge over them. And then you go on and you make yourself God in your own lives, and your own schedules, and you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. But as it is, it seems that James is saying that that might be the place. Now, he's called them brethren, and I think that he's clearly talking to true believers, those who are saying that their, their faith claim and their life claim are matched up. They love Jesus. They love the Lord. He's saying, but as it is, you seem to still be doing these things. Stop it. It's just arrogance. All such boasting is it's not right. It's evil. And don't feel too bad about that. I mean, you need to feel bad about it. But remember, it was Jesus who turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter loved the Lord. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. How much do you love me, Peter? I love you more than anybody. Peter, do you really love me? I love you more than every other human being on planet Earth. I promise you, I love you. I mean, Peter loved Jesus legitimately, but he had to rebuke him because his living, his acting was out of concert with that which was befitting a child of God. And it seems to me that James is working very diligently now to get the attention of said believers within the church to do the right thing. Thus, he says in 4.17, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do. And what's the right thing here? Well, contextually, I could go back and I could spell out exactly what James has been articulating from chapter 4.1 and following as to what the right thing is to do, and that is to have humility before God, to submit before God, to resist the devil and he will flee. He who knows the right thing to do those things and doesn't do those things, it's sin because you've violated the standard that God has called you to as his children. I do not believe that this verse is a catch-all verse for anybody's personal convictions. Well, God spoke in my heart and whispered in my ear and he said X, Y, Z. Therefore, if I, don't, if I know the right thing to do, if I don't, it's sin. Man, I'm over here like going, Dad, I'm trying to find... Trying to find. You see, the danger in that is becomes we become little pontiffs and we have little seats in our own little minds and, and we get some divine revelation ourselves that's right on par with Scripture. And in the same way, we would say forboden to that with regards to the Roman Catholic Church. No, thank you. The Scriptures are sufficient. Scripture alone. We have a tendency to have this little inner still small voice that we say is a divine revelation from God to me personally. That's a dangerous place to be. Let me tell you, when I hear a little still small voice in my ear and I can't tie it back to the scriptures, I ignore it. Don't need that little still small voice telling me to do whatever it was or to not do whatever it was if I can't find it in the scriptures. 
Because I also know there's a devil who's the true adversary, who's the father of lies, who somehow with these flaming darts we see in Ephesians chapter 6 can also put little whispers in our ear. Did God really say? I don't know how that works exactly, but we know that it works according to the scriptures. And so when I get that little tweaking in my ear, if it contradicts anything that's in the scriptures or doesn't line up specifically with what's in the scriptures, no thank you. As good as it may seem, no thank you. All I want to do is what God's word says. That's it. That's it. So James has shown us the right thing to do. He's talking to the, to the brethren, brothers and sisters. Those whom he is saying are his people. He's shown them the right thing to do. But if you don't do it, you're, you're living in sin. You're not showing a submissive attitude and heart to the will and ways of God. You're still probably going to be standing as judge over others based on your own personal convictions. And you're still going to be doing your own life, making your own decisions with, you know, with a tacit recognition of God and of his sovereignty. I mean, we would always say that, just like those in James chapter 2 also said, we have faith, but we have it without works, and it's still a saving faith. It's a living faith. They were just as assured of themselves as perhaps some of us might be today with regard to this as well. And James sure waxed eloquently for a long time trying to convince otherwise, didn't he? He did. James would say, don't be merely hearers of the word, but be effectual doers of the word. And that's when I pointed Alex out that one time, because it's a serious spiritual miscalculation otherwise. It says you've deceived your own hearts otherwise. And that word there in the Greek is a mathematical term. Let's not be those who make spiritual, significant spiritual miscalculations. Let's just, fear the God. Let's just fear the Lord. Walk in submission to His ways. If the Lord wills, we'll do this, that, and the other. We're going to make plans, but He could change my plans. Lord, you can send me anywhere you want to send me, when you want to send me, how you want to send me, and I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's do this. He'll work out the details. Amen? That's what He does. And I believe this is James' postscript to us as brothers and sisters, genuine brothers and sisters. I don't think he's assuming that those to whom he's writing now may not be. He's already dealt with them. He's saying, brothers and sisters, these things ought not be this way. So let's go live and learn to let live to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray.